0: While we're on the subject of space, have you talked to Elon yet about your high performance vacuum panels for his SpaceX project?
1: Not yet, but I'm going to drink a beer with him. Welcome to Innovational Correctness, a podcast all about innovation and transformation, hosted by David Luna, author, keynote speaker, and founder of Gamma Digital and Beyond. David and his guests discuss real-world practical advice on how to best harness the creativity of your employees and go from idea to product, giving you unique perspectives and insights into their success, all while separating hype from reality and replacing bullshit bingo with common sense. Let's jump right in to the show.
0: We're back at it again with another episode of the Innovational Correctness Podcast. In today's episode, I talked to Dr. Joachim Kuhn, who is the CEO and founder of VacuTech, a very innovative company that produces highly efficient, space-saving, and environmentally friendly vacuum insulation panels that insulate 10 times better than traditional installation types. Vacutech has won the Top 100 Innovation Award, has been the national champion at the European Business Awards multiple times, made it into the Top 10 of the Greentech Awards, along with so many other awards and recognition that it would seriously take about half an hour to name them all. But I'll be sure to include them in the show notes if you're interested and want to save time. So, what are we going to cover in this episode? Well, what vacuum insulated panels are and what they can be used for, what makes them so special along with some of their properties, why vacuum is such a good insulator, how common insulators such as Styrofoam perform against vacuum panels, and spoiler alert, it's staggering, some of the challenges Joachim faced with his innovative vacuum panels how his product stacks up against the competition and how he was able to compete against Asian manufacturers despite these being much cheaper, the steps his company is currently taking to make these panels much more affordable and available for many more customer applications, how he decides which market to enter next when the potential for his product is so vast, why he didn't take his successful company to Silicon Valley but instead stayed in Germany, what he recommends companies do to bring their breakthrough innovation to the market along with many more topics. So without further ado, let's go meet Joachim. Welcome to the podcast, Joachim. I'm really glad to have you on the show. Before we start, do you want to explain to the listeners who you are and what your company does?
1: Yeah, my name is Joachim Kuhn. I'm founder and CEO of Vacutech. And Vacutech is a producer of super insulating panels, so-called vacuum insulation panels. These panels insulate 10 times better than conventional insulation materials like foams, fibres. And we also produce from these panels boxes and containers for thermal, thermally controlled transports and such a box with these super insulation panels and together with another component called PCM, phase change material. So these boxes can keep a temperature inside constant for four to 10 days, irrespective of the outside temperature. And those boxes are used for in pharmaceutical industry for for example, to transport pharmaceutical goods, drugs, medicine from A to B, from one continent to another.
0: So you mentioned phase change material. Can you explain to the listener what that exactly is?
1: Yes, phase change materials are materials which can store heat cold um, at a given temperature very efficiently because and the most common phase change material is ice from water, which in the phase transition, which is at zero degrees C, there is a lot of heat stored, cold stored. And, and so when ice is melting, thawing or freezing, then you have this heat released.
0: So in simple terms, it would be any material that gives off or stores energy to its surroundings Surrounding environment is that correct?
1: Exactly, exactly. So we don't typically use water because uh, water, as I said before, is has its phase transition at zero degree. We use other material, positive temperature range, for example, paraffins, and in the negative temperature range, typically salt solutions, which can give you, for example, minus twenty or minus thirty degree.
0: So what are some other applications these vacuum insulated panels can be used for? And what type of properties does the material have to have in order to achieve this stellar 10x performance increase?
1: So the vacuum panel are based on the uh, fact that heat is conducted by air and and also radiation and, and also uh, thermal transition through the solid state. So if you remove the air, you have removed two major heat transfer modes, and thus the remaining modes do not transfer heat very good. And this is a good example for it is the very well-known thermos bottle, which is also evacuated and keeps your coffee warm or your iced tea cold cold for a long time. And this principle of the thermos bottle, where the walls are also evacuated, we produce that in a panel shape.
0: Can you explain to the listeners who are probably not physicists with a PhD like yourself, why air is such a good insulator? Because we always hear that lots of air pockets creates good insulation, but the lack of air is an even better insulator can you explain that in simple terms
1: okay air is is a good insulator but no air is a better insulator (laughs) that's very simple yeah so um, of course uh, when you have your that down jacket uh, the air is comprised uh, within the feathers let's say but if you would have no air which is not the case in your down jacket then the jacket would even insulate better so air is a good insulator but no air is even a better insulator
0: is that because it doesn't transfer any heat
1: exactly so the heat is transferred via the air, by convection, and by air conduction, and and is also transferred by radiation. And its fourth mode is transferred by the solid state, by the matrix of any substance. So if you remove the air, you have removed the heat transfer of two modes already, and the rest, which is remaining, is only transferred by radiation and by the conduction through the matrix.
0: This is why I like doing these podcast interviews about topics that I don't know too much about because, hey, today I've just learned something.
1: I'm sorry. It's uh, <laughs> many people are not aware of that, but you use that in everyday life. And for example, uh, many people think the the window panes are evacuated. Yeah, that's smooth. That's not true. There's a gas in it. And so, um, uh, if you would evacuate a window pane, uh, it would collapse. Yeah, because no nothing would uh, constrain the panels from collapsing inside. Yeah, and the vacuum. Uh, if you if you apply a vacuum on a on such a glass pane, double um, sided glass pane, then a pressure of 10,000 kilogram per square meter would apply on the on the glass and of course the glass would collapse.
0: Well next, let's next let segue into my next question, which is if there is a vacuum inside, you would need some counter pressure for it not to collapse. So what's inside these vacuum insulated panels for it not to collapse?
1: Exactly. You need. A, that's why you need a core material inside the panels, uh, which has also to fulfill some certain qualities. For example, it has to be open pore, 100%. So gas remaining in one pore would destroy all your, <laughs> all your efforts. Then uh, it has to have a low uh, conductivity with radiation and, and via its own matrix. And that's why we use core materials of compressed silica powder we have open cell foams, you can use glass fibers inside. These are typical core materials for vacuum panels. We use them all.
0: And how do some of the alternative insulators that we all know of, like air cushions or styrofoam, compare to these vacuum panels? Because you mentioned vacuum panels are 10 times as efficient as standard insulators.
1: Yeah, that's true. So um, a regular air cushion or, or foam would transfer heat 10 times more efficient than a vacuum panel. Or in the other way around, a vacuum panel is a 10 time better heat insulator.
0: Okay, so are there any other insulation materials that have a similar performance than these vacuum insulated
1: panels? not to my knowledge so uh, vacuum panel will be and is and will be for the next uh, 100 years uh, or even more the best insulator available
0: so at this point i'm pretty sure there are some listeners out there that are still critical and are saying something like well this is too good to be true there's got to be some drawbacks no product is perfect so what are some of the challenges or drawbacks of this material
1: Yes, the vacuum panels are a bit complicated to manufacture. That's why we are specialists in doing that. They are more expensive than conventional foam insulation, if you look at the square meter. And so uh, these are two typical drawbacks. Uh, if you They can be punctured by a hole. And so whenever you have, cost-wise, whenever you have enough space uh, and need a good insulation, you will use not a vacuum panel, but a conventional foam or fiber insulation. But if you need a good insulation, then and you, and you have restrictions uh, with the space, then you will use... Use vacuum panels.
0: So, you mentioned that these panels are much more complex and expensive to manufacture. So, what are we talking about? How much more expensive are these panels compared to other traditional insulators?
1: roughly spoken, a panel has 10 times more insulation performance. If you take a conventional insulation with 20 centimeter and a vacuum panel with 20 millimeter, for example, then the costs would be a factor of six, where the vacuum panel is more expensive.
0: So they're essentially six times more expensive to manufacture, but they insulate 10 times as good as traditional insulators. Yes. And as such, I still have a net benefit. Besides the manufacturing cost, what else drives up the cost of these panels?
1: There's a lot of technology behind it. The film itself um, is uh, not like it looks uh, a very easy aluminum film. It's a multi-layer film with nano coatings, different kinds. Then you have uh, the process. You have to be very careful to seal it in the right way. Then you have the core material, which is an experience of its own, because uh, you have to be very careful manufacturing it and also how to handle it. Then it's how to check it. So there are many factors around the production of a vacuum panel, which are not very easy to understand. Um, It looks easy, very easy, but it is not.
0: Yeah, from, from my experience, most of the time, seemingly simple principles or applications are mostly more complex than one initially would assume. Would it be correct to assume that these panels would be ideally suited for house insulation? Because the question that I would have is, on the one hand, you have really good insulating properties, but it's really expensive. And with house insulation, you have lots of surface area. Is that the case?
1: Yes, they are suited for house insulations and we do it. We sell a lot of panels in-house into house insulation and you use it in a house where you have you need a good insulation and where you have some space limitation or where space is very valuable. Um can give you examples. For example in facade insulation, you use them where you don't have the base just to build up a a very thick insulation on the wall. Then you have the solution with a thin vacuum panel. Another example is on on flat roofs or terraces. If you don't have the opportunity to build up a, a very thick floor, then you use also the very thin vacuum insulation panels and you won't have any stabs when you enter your terrace, for example. That's the advantage here.
0: That makes sense. So I'm a big fan of tiny houses and with tiny houses, you have, well, space is at a premium. So the cost of these more expensive panels wouldn't be such a burden to the homeowner. So do you have any projects that are using these vacuum insulated panels for tiny houses and all?
1: Yes, we have. Exactly. Tiny houses is one of the projects. It can also be containers, office containers, uh, other type of containers where you uh, serve as a house or as an office. can be also uh, caravans or so where you really don't have much space, and, uh, but then the insulation is very, very essential to avoid an overheating, for example, in summer.
0: Okay, so what are some of the less common applications that these panels can be used for?
1: A common insulation, I start with a common one is uh, fridges and freezers. Vacuum panels are integrated into walls of fridges and freezers and save a lot of energy. So uh, using two or three vacuum panels can save 30 to 50% energy of the fridge. Good fridge uh, with a good energy efficiency label typically uses vacuum panels. And maybe you have a vacuum panel in your fridge at home and without knowing it. Uh, but we also in, in exotic fridges like for uh, low temperature fridges for lab application. I know in the, in the International Space Station, there is a fridge which uses our vacuum panels. So these are from common to very exotic applications, uh, only if you regard the fridge technology.
0: So they're also used in space?
1: Yes. Also, they uh, use the vacuum panels uh, or vacuum panels in boxes which travel to the space and back again. As you know, there are always experiments done, and then you can, of course, uh, you need a box which keeps the temperature inside, irrespective of the uh, very cold outside in the space, or when it's landing in a in a desert or in sea, it's very maybe very hot. So the exp- so the experiment or the result of the experiment inside uh, shouldn't see any temperature change, and that's what our boxes do.
0: While we're on the subject of space, have you talked to Elon yet about your high-performance vacuum panels for his SpaceX project?
1: Not yet, but I'm going to drink a beer with him.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you'd be uh, very interested. According to my research, you aren't the only ones that produce vacuum-insulated panels. So there's Samsung, Panasonic, and LG, I believe, that produce them as well, where I believe only Panasonic sells them to third parties instead of just using them for their own products. So my question here would be, what makes your product or even business model differ from your competitors?
1: So, actually, all the companies mentioned, uh, they produce another type of vacuum panel, which, uh, for example, doesn't have the long lifetime we need for our applications. So, uh, we have focused more on the long lifetime um, applications and also on other fields. For example, building industry, you you cannot use a panel which they, for example, produce and use in the fridge. You need a lifetime expectation of, let's say, 50 years. And that's what we do. Uh, We also have a lot of uh, areas where we use panels at higher temperatures, at 100 degree, for example, when you think about a hot water tank, for example. So there are a lot of differences, uh, how you can produce a vacuum panel, which materials you choose, and yeah, you have to d- differentiate.
0: In regards to the longevity that you just mentioned, what makes these panels degrade over time? Is it the vacuum that is not as strong as before, or what makes these panels degrade?
1: The lifespan of a vacuum panel is defined by mainly three factors. It's the quality and composition of the film, the core material, whether it's micropores or macropores, and the process, how you produce it and how you check it. These are the three factors which define the lifespan of a panel and can select different materials. Then you get also different lifespans. And that's exactly what we do. We use all materials which are available as core materials. We We use a variety. We have qualified a variety of uh, films which we use for application A and a different one for application B. So uh, we are engineers which customize our vacuum panels according to the application.
0: To follow up, how are you then able to compete with Asian markets because they tend to be really good at scaling technology and thus bringing down the price? You mentioned two aspects. One is longevity and the other is quality. But Overall, how are you able to compete with these Asian markets that are very price sensitive or very price competitive?
1: Yeah, we sell our panels mostly in applications where our customers or the applicant really desires a good quality or a lifetime. If, if they are price driven and then probably wouldn't be the choice, then they would definitely use our panels. And, and by the way, and, and another aspect is if you add this extra features is not so much a matter of costs. It's a matter of knowledge and know how, how to do it. Uh, what we add here. So price wise, the difference is not very high but there is a difference and for many applications it should be easy to accept this little difference uh, because you get more quality more know-how for this for your money
0: so it essentially comes down to engineering know-how for the application that the customer is trying to use these panels for.
1: Yes. And, and, and in addition, we help our customers to, to apply the panels. We give them a good engineering support. We tell them how to use them, how to install them, how to combine them with other materials. We have a lot of experience, and uh, that makes also the difference between us and, the, let's say, Chinese manufacturer who just presents you a palette of panels for a good price.
0: Do you often get the response from some customers that say, well, what can be so expensive? It's just air or the lack of air. Do you get that response at all?
1: From time to time. yeah. But then I explain to the people that the coming back to the origin of our conversation here, I explain the insulation industry in general, they sell air for a good price and we sell less than air for an even better price.
0: And that, that should be your company slogan from now on. I also saw that you were already active with vacuum panels back in the 2000s. So why does there seem to be traction all of a sudden, or is that just a misconception of mine?
1: Yeah, I would I would agree with that. So the vacuum panel industry starts in the end of the 90s. Some big companies started also to produce it or wanted to start. And, and we started in 2001 uh, to produce vacuum panels. Uh, we expanded our business. We did different things than the rest of these big companies. And the big difference is that most of these big companies, almost all, have gone out of the market and we are still there. So there must be a difference in what we do. And the difference is indeed that we focus on on the quality, on the engineering. It's also written down in the name of Vacutech. So it's Vacuum Quality Techniques, And that was our concept, how to bring and pioneer these materials into the market.
0: So it seemed that perseverance paid off for you in the end. I hope so. So I'm also aware that you rent these panels to customers alongside selling them to your customers. So what types of customers rent versus buy these panels? And how did this business model of of renting these panels come into existence?
1: Uh, There's a misconception. We don't rent panels. It makes no sense to rent the panels. Uh, We have never done that. We rent boxes and containers to our customers. And they use it, of course, to transport perishable goods, valuable goods, temperature sensitive goods from A to B.
0: Yeah, thanks for the correction. Uh, Renting panels wouldn't make any sense. Absolutely. So what are some of the challenges you faced during the initial stages of developing these panels?
1: So we have, we want to keep the quality high and with a good cost performance ratio. That's the main focus for our uh, research now. We want to make better panels, panels which can be used also in different applications. That's where we focus on. So now we see uh, still in many places the first generation of panels. So the second, second generation of panels will be more robust to many things, robust to function, robust to, to heat, robust to uh, fire resistant as well. So there will be a lot of things to do. And yes, we're in the middle of doing it. So
0: I'm sure there's some critics out there that are saying something along the lines of, well, it's one thing to produce a product in a niche, but to provide a product or service successfully at scale is a whole nother ballgame. So what are some of those steps that you're currently taking in order to make your vacuum insulated panels more affordable and thus available to much more applications and customers?
1: So we serve already today markets uh, which use a high volume of panels. So the refrigeration industry, fridges, freezers, they use millions of panels already and we produce them. We serve to all the European fridge and freezer industry and, and, and sell basically millions of panels. So we are ready to sell it also to other industries which have a product in this scale. If somebody needs, in order of magnitude, 10 mil- millions of panels, we would be very ready to design uh, machines uh, with uh, all our experience we have in the last years to Designer machines which can produce 10 millions of panels right away.
0: So the follow-up question I would have then, if the potential applications are so vast, and I can think of dozens of them for which these panels are very well suited for, how do you choose which market to enter or which application to develop next? Because there's so many potential applications out there that it might be really hard to decide, which coincidentally reminds me of uh, the book from Barry Schwartz, which is called The Paradox of Choice, where you have so many options, it actually is harder to decide if you have more options than less. So how do you go about deciding which market to enter next?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. And actually, if I would describe our the way we run the business, it's a kind of market making. So uh, what we do, we select markets where people may not even know about vacuum panels. So we tease these markets, we approach them, we, we, we give them some advice how to use it. And, and then over time, we see how the market reacts. If it reacts very slowly, so we draw a little bit back our activities. Um, if it reacts quickly and absorbs the technology, we are ready to go full power into this market um, I can also give you an example this uh, with the market of hot water tanks here in Europe uh, widely used in your home heating system and uh, we approached the market in back in 2016 the response here was quite good and so now every supplier of hot water tank has at least some types of, of vessels where vacuum panels are applied that was a market which uh, really absorbed the panels within 2-3 years um, there are other markets, which are not so fast, for example, if you speak uh, about the industry of cool trucks, there are a lot of experiments done, technology is proven, but they are not yet ready to use it, even though the they would generate a very good energy efficiency. Um, roughly spoken, adding some panels into the outer shell of a refrigerated truck would save 25% energy. But still, the technology is not widespread, and uh, yeah, we are hoping it will come soon.
0: It's funny that you you mentioned that. I was sitting at a restaurant last week and there was a delivery truck with frozen goods. And the truck was left on uh, for obvious reasons to keep the goods uh, cool. And the refrigeration unit and the truck itself was extremely loud. So this is the point where I would hope that these delivery trucks would use more of your panels.
1: You should immediately complain about that and, uh, and help a little bit to push this industry to, u- to use our energy-saving technology and noise-saving technology.
0: Some of the listeners might not know that you went public uh, a few years ago, I believe. And when you go public as a company, a lot of things change. And I always recommend to startups that they do not take on investment until they really need to, or they really need the capital, because as soon as they do, they have external stake and shareholders, and these in turn have obvious stakes in the company, which will influence the strategic direction of a company as well. And yeah, sure, doing an IPO, you know, to get capital that is needed is understandable. So my question is, is this, what are some of the things that you miss from the pre-IPO times, and maybe what are some of the disadvantages do you see of being a public company versus an independent, non-public listed company?
1: Actually, we had investors in our company uh, since very early time, since day one. So I'm very used to go uh, along with inve- with investors to discuss with them. And it's all a matter how you deal with them. Uh, if, you are, if you are prepared to be transparent, in most cases, you will have a, a very good um, relation with your investors. Being public changed a little bit the style of investors uh, which we had. So before we had more venture capitalists or private equity side of the investment. But now we have also many big funds, banks. So that changed a little bit. However, the communication is a little bit adapted, but not drastically changed. We are even more open, even more transparent, which helps us also inside the company. Even our competitors can read our facts and figures, but we are strong enough to, to, to maintain that.
0: Do you have any institutional investors that call you up every single day and ask you why the stock is up or down? Because I remember... When I was studying at the university, I did investor relations for a public noted uh, company and I would literally have a bank call me up every single day, same guy, and would ask me why is the stock up or why was the stock down, respectively, and I would always have to give the, the same answer. So maybe I have a little biased view on the whole investor relations, but uh, do you have, have you had any similar experiences?
1: No, I haven't made this experience. So we have investor calls every day, but not the same bank or fund is, is calling. It's different banks, different funds uh, calling. And so we have a regular communication. We do roadshows once in a while. Um, and and people can read on our website. So there's a whole set of communication to the investor side. And I have not experienced an investor calling every day asking whether stock goes up and down. <laughs> okay. Our stock, by the way, is uh, as we are a small company, you have to be aware that by nature it goes more up and down than the stock of a big uh, blue chip company. We are kind of nutshell in the ocean, but we can also uh, have our goals. We can sail in the direction we want to go. And the stock market gives us also some hints uh, of direction where we want to go. We have uh, mostly positive experiences uh, being a listed company.
0: Uh, maybe some some listeners out there, especially from from Berlin, are out there and say, okay, why didn't you go to the U.S. to Silicon Valley with your expertise and uh, your breakthrough innovation here? What does maybe Germany have that the U.S. doesn't, or do you not like wearing sneakers to the office?
1: <laughs> I also come with sneakers once in a while, no problem. But we are in Germany is actually a very good uh, has actually a very good surrounding for uh, startups. So it has a very good infrastructure. There's a quite good legal frame framework of course there are always some ups and downs but it's i would say 80 90 uh, good and even better than in the u.s in the u.s you have as a highlight you have also these uh, great spirit of venture so capital spending Uh, into those companies, probably get a higher valuation in the United States. What we can see, valuations which nobody in Europe would pay for such companies. But in the United States, they are uh, valuated like that. But should that be the reason to switch the entire company to the United States no, but however, United States is a big market for us. We are there. We have a uh, we have a warehouses, offices there, factories there. But uh, we are not listed at the moment uh, in the United States. Maybe we think one day it, it's a good thing for us, so we can still do it. But we are happy that our start was in Germany. We could develop the company nicely. It's one of it's a really success story, uh, which all of the Americans look at. We have American investors as well, and uh, so we are happy where we are.
0: Okay, so why then do you think that very innovative German companies with an equal innovative product or service that go public don't get any traction as their American counterparts? Is it just awareness? Because oftentimes these companies seem equally or even better in some areas, as their American counterparts, what do you think that is?
1: Yeah, I would say it, the perception in the United States of a, of, a, of a startup is, uh, let's say, much higher regarded than in uh, in Germany. So in Germany, it's always a little bit risk aware. You see more the risks. And in the United States, they see more of the opportunities. So after a while, you look on the on the on the P&L, on the balance sheets and say, and, you, and then you know what's what has come out. But uh, I think there's a lot of more risky investments in the United States with a tsunami of money sometimes to these companies. Whereas here, you do a little bit more of the careful way of developing a company. And in some cases, it works out great in the United States with this risky approach, flooding them with money and let them spend the money. In some cases, it doesn't work out. I haven't actually seen the, the balance, uh, which way is the better way to do it.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, the Americans are generally more pragmatic, but also more risk-taking and tend to invest in some things that might not be too sure. And Germans, on the other hand, tend to be more risk-adverse and tend to like plans more than uh, actually action sometimes.
1: Yeah, and uh, maybe the American system tends to bring out companies like uh, Apple or, or like uh, Amazon, which haven't been profitable for many, many years, or, or Tesla now. <laughs> and the German, com- the German system brings out more or less these companies of the successful Mittelstand and only sometimes a very big company. Uh, maybe that may be the difference in the results.
0: Yeah, you bring up uh, an important point, which reminds me of WeWork. Uh, I remembered a few years back, the valuations were going up and up and up. And I just thought to myself, they're not even profitable. And these valuations are just somebody's assumption, somebody's estimate about the future potential of uh, a business model. And they were very far away from being profitable. And on the other hand, Regis, uh, you could say, to a certain extent, a competitor of theirs was already profitable, but they were valued, I don't know, 100,000 times or 10,000 times more than Regis. So that, that kind of also uh, tells you a lot uh, there too. And without long-term profit, you have nothing to invest, be it R&D, marketing, or anything like that. And there's also one of my favorite quote, which is, revenue is vanity, profits are sanity, and cash is king. So what are some of the more common mistakes you see German companies, but also other companies make when it comes to breakthrough innovation? And what recommendations would you have for these companies?
1: Yeah, if you feel you have a breakthrough innovation, you should um, at first be on the safe side. So you have to check your technology uh, how safe it is, how reliable it is and uh, and then of course you should uh, also yeah, write a patent on it, uh, international patent and from this state uh, you can start to in, go into the market and test the markets as I described before so you just see how your product is absorbed by the market. And that it cannot be a theoretical exercise. You have to really go to the your potential customer, your potential applicant, and discuss with him the application. And and he will tell you many things uh, why it works or why it works not. And you have to adapt this, go home, maybe modify your product. And in this iterative process, you will greatly develop. And uh, if you have done that with, with several applications or several customers, then you see what your product is worst you see the value you see the potential of your product so this exercise going into the market cannot be replaced by any yeah exercise on a on the paper uh sitting at your desk. You have to go out in the market, speak with the people.
0: Yeah, this is something I, I really try to hammer home with my clients is get out of the office, which is kind of the lean startup principle where you just get out with your idea in front of customers and speak to them and get feedback very very early on before you further elaborate or do any more research is to really get out of the office and and test and validate your idea. Because as we know from Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. So it's really important to get out of the office and talk to real live customers to see if your product is even viable or has a viable business model behind it. So maybe you can also explain how you test your own ideas uh, or what methods you use to test your ideas or products?
1: Practical life, that's, uh, uh, that's the secret behind it. Test it in practical life. So uh, whenever I have to release a bigger sum of money here for some investment, I always ask uh, about the practical test, let me show the results. And uh, i give you an example also, uh, if you develop a new type of box, implement it here in the company, one test, which I call the Singapore test. So uh, we have to ship this box to hot and humid Singapore travel there around within singapore and then after a week send it back again so if the product survives in a good shape this process it's a practical test just simple explanation yeah but of course tests can be a little bit uh, more expensive in other areas as well yeah
0: yeah absolutely so it doesn't have to be perfect expensive doesn't have to be sexy it just has to be effective at testing your hypothesis or the product and that's all that should matter Okay, so to wrap up this interview, is there something that I didn't touch on or forgot to ask you that I should have mentioned?
1: Um, I think we have touched uh, now many fields of our business. Of course, there's a lot to tell um, about 19 years or 18 years of company history. But I think you touched the main points, definitely.
0: Okay, so if some listeners out there are interested in your product or work for a pharmaceutical company, for instance, and want to test out your product, how do you want them to get into touch with you?
1: Yeah they can get in touch with me directly. I'm also uh, appearing on our website or they can directly go to their responsible division of our company uh, contact are also on our website. So that uh, would be the normal way and uh, definitely uh, come back uh, to uh, any person any company who is interested in our product.
0: Yeah, I'll be sure to include the contact details in the show notes. So thank you Joachim for being on the podcast and taking the time to give my listeners some insights on the vacuum panel industry. And I, for one, learned a lot about insulation in general and uh, physics. So thanks again, Joachim, for being on the podcast.
1: Yes, thank you very much. It was a a very nice talk, very pleasant talk. And I was surprised a bit at the beginning that we spoke so much about physics. I haven't done it for many years, so maybe not every example was uh, (laughs) just uh, very right, but uh, I try to do my best to be uh, a little bit the professor who explaining the physics, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I can also recommend a presentation, which I believe you did for the University of Würzburg, which was very enlightening and very interesting. So I'll be sure to post that video in the show notes, uh, although the slides themselves were missing.
1: That was a secret, yeah. You will only see slides uh, when you see me live.
0: Oh, okay. Then I guess the listeners have to wait until you grace them with your presence. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yes, but I hope we will meet sometime. You seem to have a lot of experience with that, uh, uh, with that enterprises like us, or with disruptive technology. Honestly, I have to say, I was very impressed about your podcast. And in the evening, when we, when our conversation didn't work out technically, so uh, I went home. and Instead of talking to you, I listened to your <laughs> podcast actually, and I found some very, very interesting podcasts where I, I also learned a lot. Yeah, it's very exciting.
0: <laughs> I appreciate the uh, the praise and uh, glad you enjoyed my podcast. So thanks again for taking the time to to be on this podcast, Joachim.
1: Thank you very much and have a nice day and have a nice weekend.
0: Wow, what a fascinating interview. So now it's this time again to summarize this episode and give you some of the key takeaways. For me, I've had two key takeaways. First, most listeners would probably think that VacuTech with its vacuum insulated panels are a disruptive technology. But that's not the case. And when I use the term disruption, I'm using it how Clayton Christensen, the author of The Innovator's Dilemma, originally defined it. Now, the concept of disruptive innovation is used to describe a technology that uproots and eventually replaces an existing technology. So think of video streaming eventually replacing video rentals. But by misunderstanding this one critical term, we, or most people, lose much of the understanding and the power of the innovator's dilemma. And let me explain why this is so important, why I'm harping on this this term. If we use disruptive innovation to describe basically any situation in which an industry is shaken up or where incumbents fall, the usage itself would be Much too broad. I think we can all agree on that. And applying the concept correctly matters and is actually critical in order to realize its benefit. So, a small competitor that steals small parts of your market share, you can most likely ignore, unless, of course, they're on a disruptive path, in which case it could be very fatal to your company. However, in both of these challenges, you need to address them fundamentally different. But in order to really correctly identify which innovation type VacuTep or any other technology has or we're dealing with, we need to talk about the types of innovation. And generally, innovation comes in three flavors, sustaining, breakthrough and disruptive innovation. So let's go through them very briefly. So sustaining or also named incremental innovation is a continuous technological improvement to an existing product service, or process within your existing business model. So essentially, the goal is to do what you're already doing much better. So think of the three-bladed razor becoming a five-bladed one. I personally think the three-bladed one cuts better, but that's just my opinion. And generally, you know, that's the line share of innovation that happens within companies, and it falls into this category. Now. A breakthrough or radical innovation is a change to an existing product, service, or process that has a significant impact on the business, but still fits within your company's business model. So think of the Motorola Razor. Even though it was a clamshell, it really pushed the boundaries of design and was really a runaway success for Motorola. Now, this sometimes allows companies to leapfrog ahead of its competition, but the innovation still stays within its core offering. And then finally, we have disruptive innovation. We hear that so often. It is essentially a new product, service, or process that either creates a new market or enters the bottom or low end of the market and is initially considered inferior, not superior, inferior. This is important to an existing offering as it moves up and displaces established incumbents. Think of streaming services such as Spotify or Netflix displacing compact disks. So to determine if Vacutech's product has any disruptive potential at all, you need to ask yourself three questions. One, does it have low-end disruptive potential? Two, does it have new market disruption potential? And three, does it disrupt at all? So, Vacutech has clearly started to transform many industries on how they think about insulation, but it is not disrupting it. Now, disruption can either originate from the low-end or new market. Now, low-end disruption takes place when incumbents over-serves their profitable and demanding customers, leaving a foothold at the bottom for disruptor in the less demanding segment. Now, on the other hand, new market disruption creates markets where none have previously existed, turning non-consumers, so they had nothing before into consumers. So, VacuTech's panels did not start off from either low end or new market, but instead had the opposite trajectory, starting off with a much better product. Remember, it's 10x better than, say, Styrofoam. Not worse, better. Overall, we can say Vacutech's products is a breakthrough innovation. Not disruptive, but with disruptive technology or products, it's much easier to beat incumbents when they are motivated to flee rather than fight. Now, there's always, they, they are always motivated to go up market and almost never interested in defending new or low-end markets that the disruptors find so attractive. So why would I, as a comp- or as an incumbent, want to defend a low-margin, low-end market? I would always go up, and that's why disruption is so dangerous. That's also the reason why you should never ever target an incumbent with a sustaining or incremental solution, because they have the resources, the customer base, and the motivation to fight any threat coming from that new competitor and if i find you as a listener of this podcast ever doing this then i will unsubscribe you personally from this podcast now all jokes aside it's almost always the case where an established competitor wins if they are threatened with a sustaining technology simply by doing what they're really good at satisfying their customer with incremental improvements now over the past few years you've probably heard countless keynote speakers consultants and startups cite Uber as a prime example of disruption, well, despite what others might want to believe, Uber is also not disrupting the taxi business. Now, even most business or innovation consultants don't even understand that most disruption originates from incremental innovation. And that's worse because they should actually know better as they tend to throw around the term like there's no tomorrow and even get paid for Often these people use these terms so loosely, and at, le- at least that's my explanation I have, to support whatever it is that they're trying to sell or convey. And most of the times their product or service is merely improves or simplifies an existing technology. But these people are still so insistent on Uber being disruptive, then they need to look for another definition that makes Uber fit within this category. By these explanations, you should also be able to easily understand why Tesla, for instance, is not disrupting their respective industry, the automobile industry, even though, you know, many would assume that high-end electrical vehicles such as the Model S from Tesla are disruptive, the disruptive innovation theory indicates actually a very different disruptor, low-speed electrical vehicles. Who would have thought? Their seemingly disadvantages, such as their low-top speed, limited driving range, are actually classical hallmarks of disruption. They compete on metrics of performance such as simplicity, convenience, affordability that appeal to non-consumers, further democratizing the car, enabling more people who previously could not afford a car to enjoy its benefits. Low-speed electrical vehicles are actually very successful in China where they are actually targeting non-consumers, which is a a new market disruptive example, that basically can't afford a traditional car and thus are happy to embrace a low-end alternative. Because between a low-end alternative and nothing, well, the choice is obvious. But for low-speed electrical wheels to be truly disrupted, they still need to migrate to higher performance and higher profit margin markets. Now, one last example is the internet. And also the internet for Dell was not a disruptive technology, but instead a sustaining innovation. Now you may say, wait a minute, minute." the the internet was not disruptive? I'm not talking about the internet as a meta technology, but a technology for Dell. Now, Dell's business model was already disruptive before they embraced the internet as a new distribution and communication channel. Remember, they, they sold PCs over the phone? And that was very, very disruptive at the time, and it cut out the middlemen or the retailers. However, for Compact, HP, IBM, the internet had a huge disruptive impact. Remember, disruption also is relative to the industry. What might constitute disruption for one company might have a sustaining impact on another. That's also important to keep in mind. So you have lots of companies today that are basically glorifying disruption at any cost. They have to have a disruptive business model in order to be successful in the future, which is actually bullshit, Uh, because you can have a very, very successful business model and you can be hugely profitable with just incremental innovation or even a breakthrough or radical innovation like Vacutech, for instance. So it doesn't need to be disruptive. And there's just this glorification of every single company out there that wants a disruptive business model. And that just isn't going to work. Now, the second takeaway from this interview was when you're confronted with too many options or put another way, when your product has so many or too many potential applications, it's really important to stay focused, especially when you're a startup that has much less runway than a well-financed corporation and you need to select the most attractive and lucrative markets first one important strategy is testing and validating your ideas or a business model as early as possible and as cheaply as possible ideally this should be done by not by beating a dead horse and analyzing the market potential in theory but instead with real-world customer feedback you know Customers are actually okay with an early or even ugly prototype to get their feedback. I haven't met one single customer in the hundreds and hundreds of interviews that uh, I've done that didn't want to provide their feedback on a product where they would potentially benefit from it later on by providing a better product. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. Just head to our podcast website, innovationalcorrectness.com or gammabeyond.com or just follow us on LinkedIn. There you will also find long form articles, videos and other podcast episodes about innovation and transformation. And if I could ask you for one small favor, it would be this. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Overcast or the podcast app of your choice. It really helps us out by encouraging more people to find our podcast and reach hard to get guests. Last but not least, if you have any suggestions Questions for further episodes, or guests that we should invite on a podcast, or just have feedback—you have three options: emailing us at info@gammabeyond.com, at filling out our anonymous feedback form at innovationalcorrectness.com, or leaving us a voice message with your question or feedback so that it can be included in the podcast and all listeners can profit. Just go to innovationalcorrectness.com. Links are in the show notes. I've been your host, David Luna. Until next time.